November 1st, 2018. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neuroscience podcast. I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. Our guest today is Maurice Shakran, who is Professor of Physiology and Head of the Computational Systems Neuroscience Laboratory at McGill University. Hi, Maurice. Hello. His group works on mechanisms of optimal coding and sensory systems by linking cellular processes to sensory processing at the systems level, as well as behavior in weakly electric fish and more recently in primates. That's correct. Uh, around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. And Fidel Santamaria. Hi, Zalma. So your work bears out some of the mechanisms of how sensory neurons achieve optimal coding in the electric fish. And at the core of optimal coding is the principle that neuronal systems are tuned to the statistics of the natural environment, of the stimuli in the natural environment. And you've actually worked out that this process adapts to changing environments through a feedback mechanism. So I want to, all of this is significant for many reasons, but I'd like to start off with the magic of optimal coding itself and, and, and what it means at the neuronal level and how you detect it and how you manipulate it. Okay, so there, there are <clears throat> many signatures of optimal coding, and it depends ultimately on what you believe uh, are constraints in the environment and what you believe the system is, is trying to do. So, so one variant uh, of optimal coding, and that was worked on by uh, Simon Laughlin back in the 1980s, was to, to make a relationship between the probability distribution of stimuli occurring in the environment and the neural tuning function. So specifically, under some assumptions, the neural tuning function should be the cumulative integral of that probability distribution, and that's what he found in this seminal uh, 1981 paper. Uh, so what we've worked on more recently was to have a version of optimal coding that takes into account the frequency domain such that uh, many stimuli or can be uh, decomposed into uh, frequencies via uh, power spectra, free decomposition, and in, in many systems, for example, the auditory system, but also in the electrosensory system, temporal frequency turns out to be a very relevant uh, stimulus attribute. So uh, one theory that was, you know, that dates back all the way to, to, to Shannon, actually, when he formulated information theory, uh, you know, circa 1949, is that if you want to maximize mutual information under some assumptions, the um, response to, to the stimulus should be uh, whitened. In other words, should contain equal power at, uh, at all frequencies. Uh, so this has been uh, applied to neuroscience several times, and then the one assumption is the, or one idea is that the tuning properties of the neurons should oppose this decaying spectrum. So as natural stimuli tend to have this um, scale uh, invariance property, in other words, the spectral power will decay as a power law as a function of frequency with a given exponent, then this would mean then that the tuning would have to increase as a power law. And there would need to be a match between the, 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 the exponent of the tuning and the uh, exponent of the uh, stimulus in order to maximize information. And that's guess, what we found. I guess also optimal coding, the idea is uh, from information theories like, so you, you divide the amplitude of a signal, right? Like in two, four, eight, sixteen 16 pieces, right? 
-hmm. And then that you can say, well, that, that you can divide the amplitude of uh, the signal that goes at 10 hertz, at 50 hertz, but, but the division, the actual size of the bin stays the same, right? Mm -hmm. So if the amplitude of, as you move along the frequency axis, if the amplitude, the frequency of how, if that's just statistics, right? Mm -hmm. How many, what is the probability of seeing that uh, event, mm -hmm. right? Decreases, then that means that you're losing bits, right? I mean, if you understand the amplitude divided by, 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 by bins, mm -hmm. and, and those bins are fixed, the, the, the less you have the, in amplitude in the frequency domain, the fewer bits you have, right? Um, um, and then what you need is to remap whatever amplitude, relevel that in order to accommodate the same number of bits per channel. Per, per, and a channel is a frequency. Mm -hmm. um, I totally clarified it. For now. Is it so, really? No. Maybe not. <laughs> but the, it makes sense. <laughs> it makes sense oh, yeah. if you assume the frequencies are, are all independent channels. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, 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 that's the, the idea, idea right? right? The idea there is uh, if you are, it's like saying you see green leaves, green leaves, green leaves. It's like that's going to be the highest uh, uh, number of things, right? Mm -hmm. you, you want, and then a tiger will appear every now and then, but tiger is really important, mm -hmm. right, for your survival. So you want to encode the same amount of information that leaves to, to, to level that, you know, for the brain to then separate uh, that information. That's kind of like leveling the playing field across the information because green leaves are going to, uh, uh, it's the, the, the largest amount mm -hmm. of, of, of variability in an image, for example. Yeah, so. But that's not the important one. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one way to see it. Yeah. I mean, the way I see it is that frequencies with low power are, tend to be very weak signals, and so they are therefore more susceptible to noise mm. than frequencies with higher power, which would, of course, be higher amplitude signals. So one way for the system to, to, to counteract this is to amplify right. the uh, higher frequencies with weaker noise, in order to essentially protect, or sorry, weaker uh, amplitude in order to protect yeah. from noise. And that's, that's another way of, of looking at it. So uh, it helps me if it's a little bit more concrete. So tigers and leaves are not what you're measuring, but um, so could you say something about what you actually are measuring? So there's an electric field at one place. So uh, on the, on the, on the on skin the surface of the, of the animal. And, this, and the animal has a bunch of these, but Correct. you're basically sampling really close to some small number of receptors. So the, we're assuming that the image is going to be spatially uniform, which of course is not true entirely in reality, but to some extent will be. But anyway, frequency doesn't refer to spatial frequency. No, it it'll be temporal frequency in this case. I mean, there is a spatial component, just like in the visual system. It's just that for us, it's much harder to sample things spatially because we'd have to put a bunch of, let's say, dipoles in the water. So, you're, so none of this is concerned with the animal's ability to, to, to the resolution in space. It all has to do with resolution in time. Correct. So getting back to bits yeah. and stuff uh, like that. Yeah. These are time bits. And, right. Yeah. Um, so, the, you know, you assume there's a signal that contains... 
that's a time varying signal and that there would be uh, you can decompose then into Fourier components and that these different components are going to have different amplitudes. So for most natural signals lower frequencies are going to be more represented or have higher amplitudes than higher frequencies. And in the actual um, in the actual fish there's a there's a, a carrier frequency so, and so the resolution of in time has to be somehow yes but it's a high frequency for these fish so it's 600 to about a thousand Hertz and the frequency content of the signals we are looking at is less than one Hertz so we're way above Nyquist uh -huh. for for those signals right so uh, so does yes. the fish care about the I mean in principle the fish could do better than than what it's actually having to do in real life yes but it's an remember that it's energetically costly to produce this electric field. So the fish is actually spending a huge amount of energy generating this field 24-7, essentially. So the field starts a few days after birth and goes on 24-7 until the animal dies. So metabolically, you know, they're, they're basically generating this field and they spend a lot of energy how doing do it. How do they do it? Well, that's a million-dollar question. So there are some of my colleagues, so Michael Markham at the University of Oklahoma, John Lewis at the University of Ottawa have looked at some of the energetics. And the, the, the short answer is that the fish don't expend that much more energy than a non-electric fish, which means they must have somehow become more efficient with the rest of their metabolism and how I would not be able to tell you. But they have the the way it works is that there are cells that create currents on the surface. Of so the there fish. are different types of electric organs. So there are myogenic electric organs and neurogenic electric organs. So myogenic, as the name implies, derived from muscle. So essentially, you've got myocytes that have lost the ability to contract, so no actin, no myosin, and they've been converted into what are known as quote electrocytes. So they're like just. You know, in, in, in the simplest form, you can imagine it as a cylinder, like a bunch of batteries stacked up in, in series. And all the ionic currents, so the sodium potassium channels, are on one side, and they're arranged like that. So essentially, they get innervated by, by a nerve coming in from a, what's known as a pacemaker nucleus in, in the brain that sends a command down the spinal cord. And this will then innervate all the electrocytes at the same time. So all these currents will add up because they're all going the same direction and they will generate the field. Now in our fish, the, we, the ones that we study, the electric organ is neurogenic, so it's derived from modified nerve tissue. But to some extent it's the same principle. Uh, the reason why we study them is that you know, when we paralyze them with curare, the electric field doesn't disappear. So for a myogenic electric field, it would, right? it would because it'll block the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors at the neuromuscular junctions. Huh. Uh, but in our fish with a neurogenic electric organ, then it has no effect on the electric field. So the electric field persists, even though the animal is immobilized. And there's some place on the fish that doesn't have any of these cells that acts like the current sink for the whole field, or? So the current sink tends to be closer to the, well, it, it's oscillating very fast. So, you know, it, it alternates quickly between, quote, uh, sink and oh, source at 600 to 1,000 hertz or, or cycles per second. Uh, but 
the sink tends to be uh, close to uh, close to the neck. So if you look at these fish, if you look at their anatomy, it's quite interesting because all the vital organs, so the heart, the gut, kidney, and so on and so forth, have been really stacked towards the head. In fact, their uh, their anus is right near their chin, actually. Ah. So uh, the whole rest of the fish yeah. is just for so making the basically it's a tail and for movement and for electric organ. So, well, there are two advantages to that. A, it basically protects these organs. So, you know, predators, catfish, for example, will home in on them, in part using the electric field they generate, and they'll just bite their tail off. So, yes, this is traumatic for the animal, but they can regrow. They have re regeneration properties, just like amphibians. And there are no vital organs there, like a heart, gut. Those would be, you're not, they would not be able to recover from that. So it's a way to protect them, and it's also protecting them from the current that they generate. Electric eels, by the way, strongly electric fish, have the same issue, but to, of course, a much larger extent. Because they produce this 600 to 900 volt field, and the biggest question, of course, is how, why are they not electrocuted themselves when they generate mm -hmm. that field, right? They can electrocute, uh, you know, preys, other fish, and so on and so forth. And that, as far as I know, is still unknown, hmm. how they are somehow protected from that. So the frequency of this field is invariant throughout life, you said. But oh, it can vary. So it varies from individual to individual, but also an individual can, can vary their frequency over time. So they're cold-blooded, meaning that frequency will increase with temperature. So if you increase water temperature during the midday in the Amazon, for example, uh, frequency will increase, and at night when the water temperature is colder, then it will decrease. And they have many behaviors uh, that, um, uh, in which it is needed for an animal to, to change its frequency. So the most famous behavior is called the jamming avoidance response. So this was worked on by Walter Hollingberg, so back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and the, the idea is this. So if you have two fish uh, with very neighboring frequencies, i.e. their ED frequencies are within a few hertz of each other, let's say one hertz, then they will experience this one hertz beat. And this one hertz beat is very detrimental because it jams them, it prevents them from locating other objects, walls, prey. It really blinds their electric sense. It's as if, you know, lights in the room would be oscillating at one hertz. We would be very hampered in our everyday activity. So in the jamming avoidance response, at least the classic one, the fish with a higher OD frequency will increase its frequency. The fish with a lower OD frequency will decrease its frequency. This will effectively increase the beat frequency by 10 hertz or something like that. And this will shift it away from the frequency range of prey or other stimuli, and this allows then the animal to electrolocate once again. So these lights around us, for example, oscillate at 60 hertz, but that doesn't bother us too much. So this is kind of the same idea for them, except they act, since you know the beat is created from the interaction between the two fields, 
each fish has to determine, okay, am I the higher frequency fish or the lower frequency fish? And therefore, should I increase or decrease my frequency? So Walter Hallingenberg did a very elegant set of experiments and worked out the circuitry that gives rise to that behavior uh, back again in the uh, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, and so they can change their, their, their EOD frequency. Uh, you know, they also have brief increases in EOD frequency. Those are communication call, calls called chirps, and these are used either for aggression or, or, or during mating, for example. Um, so we've studied a lot about, you know, how these, these signals are encoded. In, in so to get back to, to whitening, yeah. the, the, um, the response that you're measuring, so the, the stimulus is an analog thing. Correct. The response is, is this a spiking neuron? Yeah, it's so a digital. You... So, well, we turn this the spike train into a binary. So essentially we take a, we bin time with small, you know, high enough resolution. So I don't know, typically a bin width of half a millisecond. And then we put zeros if no spikes occur within a bin or one if a spike occurs within the bin. And then we just look at the power spectrum of that uh, binary sequence. Or sometimes we just low-pass filter that. Since you know our frequencies are below one hertz, we can low-pass filter that and look at this uh, to get a firing rate, and it'll give you the same spectrum at least over that range of frequencies. So that'd be roughly what the next neuron in line is seeing in the way of a roughly conductance change waveform or something. Well, it's what we assume would be transmitted to the next neuron. Now, of course, that doesn't take into account synaptic plasticity or other nonlinear integration mechanisms that could occur in the next neuron, and we have plenty of evidence that there are nonlinear integration mechanisms, but, but yes, it assumes that each neuron is trying to optimize the information transmitted, which I think is the optimal strategy if all neurons are independent. But we know that neurons are not independent, they're correlated. And so now one of the questions that we, we, we study in the lab is basically how, you know, how does the brain deal with uh, correlated activity, which is, of course, a very hot topic these days, lots of, lots of labs studying this. And so the optimal coding I mentioned, uh, this is what we want to do now, is now that we know that there are, co there are correlations, how does that impact optimal coding? And that's... that's so the correlations between the receptors, is that what we're thinking oh, about? Between the pyramidal cells. Per, uh, between them. So the receptors, uh, you know, there are pores all over the fish's skin that give rise to one receptor. So the receptors are not correlated, or at least their variabilities are not correlated. So there is no... You know, they're, so, that, so that they're essentially can be treated as independent, which is great, but that's not true for the pyramidal cells. They're so. coupled synaptically with each other? Or? Uh, no, it's more that uh, they receive input from a common population of afferents, which will give rise to correlations in oh, their trial-trial variabilities. Overlapping. Yeah, overlapping receptive, receptive fields. Receptive fields. Like, um, it's like a cerebellar style network, right? Mm -hmm. So you have parallel fibers. They have like this common input. Yeah, that's yeah. the feedback. Yeah. But in the feed forward side, also just from that, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the receptors, so you, so each pyramidal cell will receive input from 1,000, up to 1,000 receptors. Mm 
there's a thousand pyramidal cells and there's 15,000 receptors. So mm -hmm. if you do the math, mm -hmm. there has to be overlap mm -hmm. between the receptive fields, mm -hmm. right? And a significant one. Mm -hmm. It can be up to 50 or 60% mm -hmm. in, in some cases. So the idea of uh, widening, just to, get it, just, yeah. just to get it straight, is in the analog input to the, to the cell, there may be, in the natural stimulus, there may be very little high-frequency information. So, mm -hmm. the, and then, so the cell becomes more sensitive to that high-frequency uh, to match its response to some other frequency that there's more of, and it has to yeah. decrease its sensitivity to that. In order to for the cell to be uh, fair about all the frrequencies, yeah, you okay. could see it as the great leveler or uh, the great democracy and but fair means depending on my s stimulus because I walk into a different situation where there's a lot of high frequency and not very much low frequency now I have to adjust compared then you would to have to the adapt. other way around yeah. and uh, the other way to look at this is through the autocorrelation function. Right, of, the, of the information channel. So the autocorrelation is giving you the time you can, you have a, 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 a if, it, if it decays slowly, then if you have information about time zero, it's telling you what is the probability of having the same value at time t, right? And then that decays. So if there is autocorrelation, that if you have a long autocorrelation, right, then you have less information in total, right? If the autocorrelation drops to zero immediately, that means that all the, the, all, all the information is independent. So that's why they say that the, the transformation matrix gets linearized uh, or diagonalized and things like that. But that's also the... If you have the input has an autocorrel a long autocorrelation, a slowly decaying autocorrelation, and the output has a sharp decay, right? Then that means that now it's decorrelated and it's optimally. Uh, yeah, and, it's it, and, and then you do the Fourier transform of that, and then it's flat yeah. because you have a, yeah. a delta function yeah. that then goes into it. Goes back to Barlow with the entire mm -hmm. redundancy reduction mm -hmm, hypothesis. Yeah. <clears throat> So, so you've been able to manipulate the degree of whitening and see how that affects behavior. Correct. And by behavior, can you describe what you mean by behavior? So a lot of the animal's behavior consists of changes in its electric field. So as I mentioned, the animal can vary the frequency of its field, and those will persist in an immobilized animal because they don't require movement. So we found, quite by accident, that uh, the animal will track the detailed time course of, of, of these envelope stimuli by changing its EOD frequency. It's actually quite spectacular. And this behavior, so if you look at the, the, the sensitivity of this behavior, you'll see that the sensitivity decays as a power law with the exact same exponent as the natural stimuli. So it's kind of matched to the stimulus for over three orders of magnitude. So what we found is that if we manipulate the tuning of the neurons such that they're not optimally encoding anymore, we can now change the way that the animal uh, responds behaviorally such that it doesn't match the stimulus anymore. 
that's what we did with these 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 pharmacological inactivation activation, which you know are highly, highly artificial. I mean, this would never happen in, in real life or in a natural setting. But during these adaptation experiments, what I didn't show you is that the behavior also adapts and come or tries to match the new exponent. It doesn't get to it because those exponents are highly unnatural, but it tries to uh, to, to to get closer to the exponent. So, so one of the, you know, what really drew me to the, to the system was this, well, the relative simplicity of, of the circuit of the brain, but also the fact that we could get this really nice correlation between neural activity and behavior. And behavior is easy to measure. It's just to put a pair of electrodes in the water and that's it, right? Yeah, the preparation. And you can... You can elicit behavior in an immobilized animal, something you would never be you, able you to do in a rat or a mouse, uh, highly, for example. highly non-natural, but for example, in drugs of abuse, right, the, the sensory perception mm -hmm. uh, changes. Yes. Right, and uh, this could be that then things are being overcompensated by the fractional mm -hmm. transformation That's of sensory correct. input. That's a possibility. Um, and then you adapt, and then you need, I mean, people get uh, addicted, and then you keep pushing it. Um, um, because your sensory feedback is all distorted. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you somehow need, you need the drug, mm -hmm. or keep taking the drug to somehow, uh, yeah, that, yeah that's, that's one way to see that's, it. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Although it has more to do with the reward system. Yeah, uh, once it gets out of balance, it's something yeah. of the reward, but... But then the sensory feedback distortion mm -hmm. that, that exists uh, it just keeps happening at, at the sensory level. That's correct. Right? Yeah. And then it takes a long time to adapt to, mm -hmm. to, to be able to process these things. Mm -hmm. hmm. So the, the, oh. the mechanism of adaptation, at least the, the main thing, of the, is feedback from the, from the brain. Forebrain, yeah. From the forebrain. So... But the, as the signal is making it up to the forebrain, presumably all of this like lightning and everything is not really a big part of the dynamics anymore because it must be trying to interpret that. Or is there a, is there a more or less direct, so, you know, fast feedback that could, that would not, you know what I'm saying? No, I understand <laughs> what you're saying. I'm just trying to, okay, so... Well, two things. First, the first is that because the f animal's behavior, so the OD frequency tracks the detailed time course of the stimulus, we know that information has to be retained in the brain. Otherwise, it could never generate the behavior, right? So that's, that's number one. Now, exactly how, it, how that representation changes from ELL, where it's temporally whitened to uh, higher order brain areas, that we don't know. But I would think, or I would hypothesize, that it changes drastically. So I would not expect to see whitening in, let's say, the equivalent of thalamus in, in these fish, because, again, which part of the information is needed versus which part can be discarded right. will depend on behavioral context, right? So, but I would not expect, no, I would expect it to, to, to become more distributed and that would be different features would get mixed, mm. much like what you would see in cortex and then somehow 
how that gets decoded downstream is is uh, well, I guess is all the cortical cells in mice in slides have yeah. been shown to perform a fractional differentiation, right? So, um, well, what's the name of the this group? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, Adrian Fairhall uh -huh. and, uh, yeah, and in Seattle. Yeah, yeah, in Seattle. Yeah, yeah. So they they got slices from the cortex. Uh, and there's some other data that was not analyzed, like with this kind of techniques, but uh, it's consistent with fractional differentiation across multiple cortical areas. Um, right, but is the input? I guess my 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 question. We don't know the input is. Yeah. Is, what is, is the input? Yes. To those we cells. Don't, yeah, that would be the next question. That, yeah. That's definitely the way to. So the maybe they perform. I mean, yes, that would support that they perform fractional differentiation of their input, mm -hmm. but I would be very, very doubtful if that input was exactly right. the outside stimulus. Mm -hmm. right? Well, or whatever uh, stimulus comes from the yeah. previous stage. Yeah, I mean, or, you know, that would be basically, you know, in the visual system, that would be amount to saying that retina and thalamus essentially don't do anything. Mm. Which, uh, of course, is not true. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. uh, so yes, I believe fractional differentiation can be used. Yeah. It across the brain areas. But the function could be different. Yes. Yeah. The function could be different. That's not to, I, not I, to whiten it necessarily. Or it's possible they might want to temporarily whiten their input, mm -hmm. but their input is not necessarily going to be exactly the natural stimulus. Right. Right. I think it's going to be a lot more complex than that. Would be what I would hypothesize anyways. So the neurons case. that are responsible for the response, are they the same neurons that feed the back response, to the response? The behavioral resp response? The behavioral response that okay. you measure. Which are, those neurons are projecting to the, to the skin. Well, they're right? projecting the electric organ to, the electric to gener organ, generate the field. To the yeah. electric organ to generate the field. Are they the same neurons that provide feedback to the no. pyramidal cells? No. It's a different set of neurons. So the way the field is generated is that they're it's a brain area called the pacemaker nucleus, as that the name implies, it just sets the pace. So these neurons have strong gap junction coupling, and they will all fire in unison one spike per cycle of the field. So if the field is at 1,000 hertz, these neurons fire 1,000 spikes per second, 24-7. Um, so to, to change the frequency, one simply needs to change the frequency of firing of all these neurons. So if you want a 1,005 hertz, then you need 1,005 spikes per second. So this, this signal is very different, I would think, than the signal that is being received back from the to the pyramidal cells, which are on the sensory side. Yeah. But somehow it can vary in a way that that is like the, that is related to the stimulus, but the changes in the stimulus. Well, the, what the feedback does is it can help set the tuning of the neurons to optimally transmit information as to the time course of the stimulus downstream. And then this information has to be decoded or unpackaged, if you will, in some way to give the behavior exactly how we do not but know. But wasn't there this work on the ELL, yeah. about like that, it's very similar. Making these analogies to the cerebellum, that it generates this kind of prediction of what the electric field is going to be. 
That's then the feedback yeah. comes, and I, I got the idea. It's going to be all local when you when you describe that you that it depends on the forebrain. Uh, 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 but okay. you know, like the, the, there will be the feedback, and then there will be the training, and you will have your equivalent of climbing fibers and parallel fibers. So and that's that's another different context. Mm -hmm. So the the classic studies on this are. are illustrate the following problems. So the fish has an electric or organ in, in its tail. So in order to move, it has to move its tail. So if you think about what's happening, as it moves its tail, it creates huge changes in its own field. Mm -hmm. Right? So if I bend the tail this way, then the field ipsilateral to the bend on the same side will increase, and the field on the contralateral side will decrease, and vice versa. Right? So by just doing this, it'll create large 30, 40% changes in its own field that's been measured multiple times. So these are self-generated stimuli, not so reafferent stimuli, not exafferent. And peripheral receptors will not distinguish between re and exafferent. They'll respond to these changes just in the same way. Either it, if you look at a pyramidal cell, now it will not respond to the reafferent stimulus. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because the parallel fibers generate this essentially this negative image of the reafferent stimulus, so this prediction. And this allows then the cell to respond selectively to the exafferent input. Mm -hmm. So this also works, by the way, if you passively move the tail via proprioception. Mm -hmm. So it does not actually require active movement. This also works with, with passive movement. Uh, this also uh, works with a spatially diffuse field versus a spatially localized field. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you know, if you, if you imagine I have two fish and there's this little prey item here, so these fish tend to eat little worms, uh, water fleas, daphnia, things like that. These Daphnia will create a very spatially localized field, whereas the conspecific will create a spatially diffuse field or electric image, if you will. Mm. So the animal, via this, this, this parallel fiber system and negative image, is able to, quote, cancel off right. the field from the other animal and thereby better detect the signal created by the daphnia. A little bit like wearing noise-canceling headphones to be able to yeah. listen to music in an airplane, essentially. Um, so, so that's the, 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 the that has been those have been the classic studies on this pathway. Mm -hmm. So now, what we found in this recent eLife paper is that the pathway was also responsible for attenuating responses to lower fr frequencies in the envelope, mm -hmm. and that's what CART gives you. Or, what I said carves out mm -hmm. the, 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 the tuning curve mm -hmm. by essentially attenuating responses to low but not high frequencies. Mm -hmm. And how it does that, we do not know. So the, in, in terms of, um, of the predictive part of this, it, it, there seems, are there analogies with, so for example, in an invasive maneuver from a prey, you could sort of think of it like a, like a saccade, right? So retinal remapping happens based on some sort of oculomotor feedback. Mm -hmm. And when you have these curarized animals, you're completely taking proprioception and any kind of motor feedback out of the Motor loop. feedback is, is taken out of the loop, and you're right that any active movements are taken out of the loop. 
So the the changes that you're, I guess the the metaphor of the of the saccade in terms of how the retinal remapping happens mm-hmm. onto the electric field of the fish. Are we looking at sort of are are, are you imagining that this is motor remapping so or motor the anticipatory fish remapping? Do not, I would not say perform quote saccades in the sense that they're not as high sudden or high frequency as, let's say, our saccades. Like when scanning an image, for example, or or looking at a painting in a museum. So what they will, however, we also generate micro saccades, right, to essentially counteract the adaptation Mm -hmm. in our our visual system and to to prevent the visual image from fading or the response to the visual image from fading, even when fixating a given target. Um, So the animal has the equivalent of that. So this was uh, shown by by colleagues at uh, NJIT and at uh, Johns Hopkins University, so Eric Fortune and and Noah Cohen. And so the animal... So the, in, during the day, the animal likes love to stay in these little tubes because it hides them, you know, masks their electrical signature, you know, they, they, they feel safer. So what they found is that if you move the tube or the, or the refuge, uh, then the animal will swim to track the position of the, refu- the refuge, sort of like this. So uh, if there's light, the animal gets both visual and as well electrosensory information. If you turn off the lights, so if you get rid of the visual, then what the animal will do is it will still track the refuge on average, but now it will start doing these high-frequency movements Mm. on top of the tracking like this. And so what they've hypothesized is that these would be the equivalent of micro saccades for the animal. So instead, by, so by doing this, these high frequency longitudinal movements, the animal is able to counteract the adaptation properties mm. of its own sensory system mm. because it cannot rely on visual information anymore. But if it can rely on another source of information, sensory information, so vision in this case, then these the amplitude of this of these movements uh, uh, drops dramatically. It's a little bit like us moving our fingers over a surface. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a form of active sensing, essentially. Mm-hmm. So, so, in our last couple of minutes, can you just say something about the generalizability in your primate models? How you? You mean my fish model or my primate models? Yeah, okay. we're moving up to okay. primate. So, obviously, there are differences between fish and non-human primates. Those are obvious. Uh, but what I do believe is that some principles will generalize. So, for example, we have found optimal coding, so temporal or whitening, in, in vestibular nuclei neurons, in, in non-human primates. Um, and the, exactly what, whether the mechanisms are the same as in the fish, we do not know. But at least it shows that both systems employ common strategies for encoding natural stimuli. And it makes sense from an evolutionary point of view because if you go well back, both our vestibular systems and, our, and, and the electrosensory system have actually evolved from lateral line. 
So the mechanoreceptors that you find on the side of, of most fish. Mm. So from, I mean, they're both eighth nerve systems. Um, I mean, the, the electroreceptors are essentially hair cells that have lost the stereocilia and have been converted to, to monitor transdermal potential difference. So you, just from that argument, you would expect to see commonalities between both systems even though at first glance you would say, well, you know, we don't sense electricity, we don't generate it. Sure, I agree with you. But once you go past the sensory transduction stage into action potentials, that's the universal currency of the central nervous system. And there, I, after that, I believe you would find more commonalities, and that's what our studies are, are, are showing. And there will be differences. I'm not. I perfectly. I'm very well aware of that. But I think there will be some commonalities. And I would say that over my career, the what we've discovered in the fish in general has been useful. Not exactly as is. There, would, there sometimes needs to be a little modifications in thinking. But it certainly has been useful in tackling uh, issues in, in or problems, at least in the vestibular system of non-human primates. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. Yeah. Thank you for joining us, Maurice Chakran. Thank you for having me. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thanks, guys. Thanks for the